Good morning. How are you? And good to see you. And uh, we are glad that you're here. If you're new or visiting this morning, may we just say welcome. We hope you feel welcome and part of the family. We're in a study on the series of, uh, in the book of James, and we're calling it Shoe Leather Wisdom, which just means it's the kind of stuff that you need for practical everyday life just to do the walk of life. And uh, we're in verses 9 and 11 this morning. So if you have your Bible or whether you do it on your phone, go ahead and open up and we're there and it, we're starting. It reads like this this morning as as we begin. And let me get the, get it up on the screen there. There we go. We're calling this morning a proper appraisal. All right. If I were a rich man. There we go. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. And obviously you can see right from the beginning, James is taking those two and, you know, juxtaposing them apart, putting them that way. It says, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Last week we talked about sufferings or trials. Uh, Earlier in the epistle of James, count it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance or perseverance. And we said that these trials are part and parcel of the Christian life. Jesus said in John 16, 33, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation." But take heart, I have overcome the world. And I said last week, and wish I want to underline it again this week, that any gospel that says you don't or won't have to go through trials, tribulations, or suffering is a false gospel. The goal is that we would develop steadfastness or perseverance and become mature and complete. The enemy of this confidence, as we talked last week, is doubt. Right? All of us have doubt. We wrestle with it. Go through it. We talked about that last week. By the way, if you are new this morning and you're wondering what we're talking about, you can go to our website, download the messages from the weeks before and get caught up. So if that's helpful, please avail yourself of that. But we said the enemy's doubt, which we all battle with. And if we lack wisdom, we're to ask God who gives generously and without reproach. But we also said we must ask in faith and continually reorient our compass back to Jesus. Becoming Mature, we must prepare our minds for action and be sober-minded, setting our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, and notice in the songs we sang this morning too, this doesn't get all fleshed out till He comes back, right? There's a lot of things that will not make sense. There's a lot of things that won't measure up in terms of how we see it from our human eyeballs. But God will make that stuff right. What this means in common English is that most of the time, most of the time, qualify it with that, God doesn't take away our sufferings. He walks with us through our sufferings. And in that we learn of God and the grace of God in ways that we would have never known. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because the Lord is walking with me. And now we come upon these two verses, which initially kind of seem out of context, right? Um, uh, My commentary, the Expositor's Bible commentary, points out that since the theme of verse 12, which we'll get to 
next week is still on trials. It should be considered in this context. So let's pray this morning. Now we've set the background. Let's ask God for wisdom and then we'll come and look at these two verses. Father, we seek you this morning. Friends have come in faith, hoping to hear from you, hoping to understand something, to be encouraged. Uh, There's numerous different things that can and probably need to take place this morning that can only happen by the power of your Spirit. Not going to be something I bring to the table or something they bring to the table, but something you bring to the table. And so we seek you this morning. We know we can't get there by our own intuition, our own mind, our own effort or willpower, that we have to cooperate with you. And we're going to be looking at some of that this morning. And so we ask for your help and your favor as a good dad. Be with us and uh, have a conversation while we spend this time. And we ask this in your name. Amen. All right. So again, let's read this. It says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the glass, he'll pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, and its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So the first thing to note here, it says, notice it says brother. And so the commentaries point out that, that we're talking to Christians here, right? We're talking, James is talking to Christian brothers. And in this statement, you hear some echoes of, of Jesus' words. Uh, James did pick up on his brother. Okay. Oh, let me get to the next one here. There we go. In Luke 18, Jesus was telling a parable, and the parable was told to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. It says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Here in this parable, Jesus underlines and highlights the issues of pride and self-righteousness. You don't have to worry about me, God. I'm certainly not like that guy. Right? And by the way, have you noticed how I serve you and how flawlessly I have performed to your expectations? Man, I am thankful to be me. I'll bet you you are too. What's the message from Jesus? Here's the message from Jesus. Don't think you're such hot stuff. All right? Don't think you're such hot stuff is really what he's saying. Pride, along with its twin cousin, self-righteousness, is a devastating blindness. What's amazing about it is everybody else can see it but the person who's got it. Right? You ever run into somebody that drips with that and you're just like trying to figure out how to bail out of the conversation and go somewhere else? That's the kind of thing. And, and note that the parable, Jesus is telling the parable to those who trusted in themselves. In other words, their strength, their power, their ability, their capacity was not so much in what God brought the equation, but what they brought to it. 
If God wants to help, great. But really, I don't really need his help because I'm so good, I, I can smoke this by myself, right? I can, I can get this done. The tax collector, on the other hand, knew. He knew he had no footing to come in barging and brokering a deal. Actually, he was well aware that he had no footing at all. And the only purchase point he did have was based on what God was providing, not what he had built or established. And what's being emphasized here? Well, what's being emphasized is the issue of humility versus pride and self-centeredness. The Bible clearly states that God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You'll find that in James chapter 4 and 1 Peter 5. We've taught that here many times before. Jesus recalibrated this in another way in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? Let's just go over that. Let's relook at that. It's, it plays into this. Okay? It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Sermon on the Mount was considered radical, and it's still considered radical. But the question is, most of us know it's radical, but we don't, know, we don't really know why, right? We just know it's different. And somehow, like we should live like that, but it's not that easy to live like that. And I want to just explore that for a second because it was totally against the Jewish mindset, all right? Um, in the wisdom literature, if you go through the Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, you get a picture of those who honor God, and this will happen, and those who don't honor God, and this will happen. And it's very clearly laid out. And um, if you're godly, it's the godly who have God's favor. It's the godly who are blessed. It's the godly who are rewarded. So it didn't take much of a shift down through history that to be, um, for that to become, if you are godly, you'll be rich. Anyone heard that one before? Right? You're wondering why it hasn't happened to you yet? Right? If you're godly, you'll have God's favor. If you're godly, you're blessed. If you're godly, you're revealed. And that then steps to, well, if I'm godly, then I'll be rich. And if you're not rich, you must have sinned in some way. So if you want, we'll just get a microphone up here. You can all come walking up. And we'll confess why you aren't rich. Right? <laughs> no, right? Yeah. We see this played out with the man born blind. Remember that story in John chapter 9, the man born blind? And what did the disciples ask? Who sinned? This man or his parents? What are they saying? They were running off a long-standing paradigm and historical understanding. Obviously, if someone's born blind, someone or somebody did something wrong. Somebody sinned somewhere. We just have to figure it out. And so they were asking Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? Because they were trying to identify the cause for 
this man's blindness because he'd been blind from birth. The issue of pride is revealed in the opposite illustration of this with the rich young ruler. Remember that story? Behold, a man came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? This was a guy who was doing a lot of right things. And he could tick through the list of the right things that he was doing. And Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me what is good? There's only one who's good. If you'd enter life, keep the commandments. And so the young man said to him, Okay, which ones? Let's get specific. Jesus said, You shall not murder, shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And it says, The young man said to him, All these things I have kept. In other words, he was flawless in duty, flawless in performance, flawless in execution. What do I still lack? There's a miss there. Do you get it? Despite the performance, there was something that was telling this guy it wasn't right. And whatever it was, he recognized it in Jesus. And he was pressing the point, hoping that he would be proved righteous, but sensing that there was a piece missing. And he was grilling Jesus to try and find out what's this missing piece. Jesus says and looks at him and says, well, if you would be perfect, if you want to be perfect, knowing the guy, knowing his life, he said, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and then come, follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And you can look up 10 dozen illustrations of the eye of the needle and a camel going through all this stuff. Uh, just to belabor the point, doesn't happen, right? And the disciples, when they heard Jesus say this, they were shocked and they said, well, well who can be saved then? Why were the disciples astonished? Because they were running off the paradigm that the godly had God's favor and the godly were blessed and the godly became rich. And this young guy was one of their stellar examples of their whole culture. Uh, And if he can't get in, who gets in? Man, if that guy doesn't get in, well, there's no hope for me. And, And it says they were shocked. Jesus had flipped things upside down. So James is employing this similar kind of um, hermeneutic when he goes to write and encourage the poor. Let's look back at this again now, having set the stage with that. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. What exaltation is there if you're poor? Thanks for playing, right? You have no options. You, You can't do anything. You You have no possibilities. You can daydream, but that's all they are, right? A a poor person lacks options. And James says to boast in exaltation. What he's saying is this, though you may be poor, go back to that idea of the Sermon on the Mount. In the eyes of the world and the standards of man, 
If you have Christ, you are a son or a daughter of the king. Okay? If you have Christ, you're a son or daughter of the king. If you have Christ, you're, uh, you have eternal life. Doesn't matter how poor you are. If you have Christ, you have eternal life. If you have Christ, you'll be exalted in the age to come. If you have Christ, you have an eternal inheritance. If you have Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, you have access to all that is Him. And therefore, if you have Christ, you are an incredibly rich person. It doesn't matter about the standards of the world. You have Jesus. That's what James is saying. Now, this is not theoretical. This is not, you know, James throwing pie in the sky out there. Why is he saying that? What, what's the leverage point here in this? Remember what we said? Who is James talking to? He's talking to people who have been persecuted and displaced. They have literally fled from their homes, probably grabbing uh, the only thing they could, maybe their Seder dishes. By the way, coming up for Easter, uh, we'll be doing uh, Seder services uh, and our own Phil Wagner will be leading us through the Seder service and how Christ is found in the Passover dinner. So I hope you look forward to that. I look forward. But, but we're talking about, uh, he, James is talking to an exiled people. And though they had been rich, I mean, they lived in Jerusalem, right? Though they had been rich, they had become poor for his sake, suffering persecution and humiliation for standing for the gospel, standing on the gospel, that Jesus had died and rose again from the grave and that whoever would believe in him would be saved. For that, and refusing to renounce that, they lost everything. Some of them got killed. We know that one of the great burdens on Paul's life was the fact that he knew he was personally responsible for the murder of the early Christians. That's why Paul would call himself the least of all the saints. What was taken from them, even their lives, and here's the point James is underlining, what was taken from them was temporary. What they had was eternal. And therefore James says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation because he is highly raised up with Christ. And I want to suggest something to us uh, here today. We've had it good in America. We've, we've faced trials. We've faced persecutions. We've had stuff come our way, and God has organized and ordained that stuff for us, and we've had to walk through it, right? And all of us could give a litany of stories of things that we've had to walk through, maybe even right now walking through but it's not near the level of what's going around the rest of the world. Um, they just did an update on uh, Fox's Books of Martyrs, and if you've never read that, um, marvelous testimony and witness and legacy of the above, of brothers and sisters in Christ who've lost everything and even lost their lives for the sake of the gospel. And James says they're exalted. Another um, ministry, Voice of the Martyrs, is a present-day ministry that tracks and ministers to the present-day persecuted church. And the stuff that's going on in some places of our planet is absolutely atrocious and heart-rendering when you read the stories. And I want to suggest to you, James is picking up very early on in our Christian history that legacy and talking about 
the brothers and sisters in Christ who are experiencing that kind of persecution and saying, don't be surprised when you run into a fiery trial, like Peter says. Or James would say, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Why? Because it's part and parcel of the Christian life. And if you lose everything, but you still have Christ, you're exalted. Then James goes to the other side and comes to the admonition of the rich. Right? Now, when we talk about the admonition to the rich, let's understand something. Most of us would not consider ourselves rich, right? I don't, right? I got two kids in college. And no, not a lot of money, right? But compared to the rest of the world, we are in the 90, we're in the 10% bracket. We are above 90% of the rest of the world in how they live and how they eat and how they dress, and what they get along. We have options that most of them never knew existed or even dreamed about. So in that sense, we are very rich in this country, comparatively speaking, to the rest of the world. So therefore, I think it's worth our looking at this uh, in a serious way. So James says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, its beauty perishes, so also the rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. James is not against riches. He's arguing for a proper understanding and use of riches. Particularly, he's saying, just like Jesus did, don't think you're hot stuff just like that Pharisee did. Right? There's something about when we start making our way in life, and most of us remember starting out, and I remember when Pam and I started out, it was so funny, one of our first arguments was over vacation and which kind of vacation we would take. Whether it would be Alaska, gold dredging and hiking in the dirt, or whether it would be the Caribbean, right? And after about 10 minutes, we started laughing. It was the stupidest discussion we ever had. Why? We had no money. It didn't matter. We looked at each other and went, we're idiots. Then we went, uh, what are we going to do for vacation, right? We had time, but we had no money. And I think most of us know that, but you get to places in life where you gain and elevate. And after a while, you start going, I got it going, right? I got some options here. Particularly, he's saying, stay humble. Stay humble. Why is this such an emphasis in the Bible? And you don't have to go far in the Bible to find this. Because we all know, when you make a little cash, it's easy to get proud, isn't it? When you make a little cash, it's easy to get proud. Uh, I was listening to sports radio this week, 710, and uh, they were talking about the uh, absolutely um, obscene amounts of money that some of the basketball players make in the NBA. And they were talking about, and Dave Wyman, who I really enjoy, I don't know if you know who he is, but former linebacker for the CF, uh, he's just got really earthy wisdom. And he said something that I thought was really profound and tied to this message this morning. He said this. He said, you know, too much money makes people weird. And isn't it true? When you read about these lies uh, and, and the ones who have, un- and they start doing stuff, you're going, whoa, that's a little off. No, that's a lot off, right? Too much money makes people weird. And he's right. When you have all the money you want, it's easy to do anything you want. 
And usually disaster is not far behind. Paul emphasizes this balance in 1 Timothy. Um, he's, he, he's paralleling what James says with this. He says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. And his rationale is this. We brought nothing into the world and we're going to take nothing out of the world. Okay? The one with the most toys doesn't win. The end of your pursuit happens when you die. Everything that you hold precious, everything you thought was so important, all those things that you took such great care of, nobody else cares about them. Boom! They're wiped out. That's what Paul's saying. But if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving, and notice the word there, craving. That same word, craving, is the same word used for the Israelites in the desert wanderings when they crave meat. Okay? And what's the point there? They crave meat more than the relationship that they had with God. And if they were asked to trade, they would have taken the meat and dumped God. And Paul's writing here and saying, this craving for money, there's nothing wrong with money. God endows people with the ability to make riches and he endows them with that ability so they can be used for the kingdom. But there is the temptation that you fall in love with the money instead of staying in love with God. So Paul says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Let me ask this morning, those of you who are 40, you seen anybody go that route in your lifetime? You seen anybody wreck, shipwreck in their faith, go apostate? Money wrecked them? I bet you we could have story time right now, right? For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The issue here, I think, is twofold. First is what Paul and James are arguing for is keep the love of Jesus as the center of our lives, not the love of money. Jesus is the center. Money is a gift. Okay? It is not that money's the center. Jesus is the center. Money's a gift. Secondly, the whole issue of contentment, I think, is one that uh, is lost in our culture in particular. James is not arguing for, uh, about getting ahead or improving your life station. If you can do that, do so. And be blessed in that. But what's being emphasized here is contentment. When is enough enough? Have you ever asked yourself that? When's enough for you? They asked uh, John Rockefeller that, who at that time was the richest man in the world. It says, what does it take, how much money does it take to keep a man happy? And you know what his answer was? One more dollar. I.e., you're never content. But the real point that James is emphasizing is that wealth, we're talking about how to handle wealth, but the real point he's talking about here is that wealth can vanish quickly. Okay? Like, like that. And if you put all your eggs in that basket, that my identity is tied to what I can do with my wealth, you're in trouble because if it ever gets taken from you, you've lost your identity. 
And some of us may know people who once were rich and no longer are rich. I remember in the 208 downturn, um, which seems like forever ago, right? Uh, but I remember in the downturn, there was a guy uh, I talked to at Men's Retreat, and he was worth $15 million, and that $15 million went to $3 million in two days. Okay? In two days. And he said to me at the retreat, he said, you know, Steve, you would think I'd be okay, Right? I started with nothing, and I still have $3 million. You would think I should be fine. He said, but I'm not. And he said, I said, why? And he said, because I had great plans, not for myself. I had great plans for the kingdom. I was going to do some really significant stuff with that money for the kingdom, and, and I was going to get a great deal of joy, and now I won't be able to do that. And he said, it ha- you will not believe how hard it is to turn my head around and get it right that God really didn't need my $15 million and he's okay with my three and he can use me anyways. It just shows, and this is a godly guy, it just shows you how easy the shift is and how hard it is to get there sometimes. Contentment, not easy to land on. The real point that James is emphasizing is that wealth can, as I said, vanish quickly. He uses the illustration of grass and flowers, which quickly wilt under the heat of the sun. Right this summer, we went to, uh, we were gone on the sabbatical and we went to Africa and Europe. And it was a hot summer. All we heard about is how wonderful it was in Seattle. And we're in South Africa, it's raining, right? And we're like, what's, you know, it's cold. And we're like, oh, sure, now it's nice in Seattle because we left, right? And, uh, and when we got back home, we had lost three bushes uh, due to the drought and our flowers in our pots just got smoked, right? Just, we walked in and went, oh, that looks lovely. Right? And that's what James is saying. It doesn't take long. Just like flowers in the heat of a drought of summer, your wealth can disappear like that. It can be taken from us. Right? That's why the Proverbs say this. Well, I'm just a bucket of joy this morning, aren't I? I can tell. I can tell you're all really into this. Thanks for your support. Proverbs 23. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it's gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings and flying like an eagle towards heaven. What it's saying is when you press all day long and you press 12, 15, 18 hours a day and your goal is to make money, you're going to... Wait, wait a minute. Balance. What about your family? What about your kids? What about just enjoying life a little bit because you don't know if you have tomorrow? Another place in the scripture says, who are you saving it for? What then is the proper attitude towards wealth that God may give? Well, use wealth for the kingdom. Many of you here are doing that and we exist as a church because of that and it's an awesome thing. Desire to accomplish kingdom things with it. But wealth is not the be-all and end-all of all things. Okay? There's an anti-prosperity gospel, right? It is not the great achievement of life. The great achievement in life is legacies, is the relationships you left behind. Do your kids love you? Did your wife love you? In my case, in your case, it might be your husband. But did people, did you impact people? Do they remember that? 
They're not going to remember your pocketbook. Our foundation, what I'm trying to say, must stay on Jesus. I don't know about you, but it's just easy for me to drift. Okay? Let me be transparent. It's easy for me to drift. I have great daydreams of things I could do if God gave me a lot of money. I am literally Tevia. If I were a rich man, would it wreck some vast eternal plan? Right? And Jesus is going, yeah, it might wreck you. Okay? We need to be humble and stewards of what we're given. Our foundation must stay on Jesus. Our wealth can be taken from us. Jesus cannot. Amen? Let's affirm that. Our wealth can be taken from us. Jesus cannot. Let's remember that's who we are. That's why we're here. That's what we're about. It's not about our wealth. It's about what he's done for us. And if he grants us some measure of prosperity, we need to stay humble and do good. What does that look like? Well, Paul echoed this uh, again in 1 Timothy. He says this, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or arrogant, pride, self-righteousness. You can fit all those words in there. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. In other words, find contentment at every stage of life that you are. If you're poor, then exalt in your poorness. Jesus loves you. He saved you. It's not going to matter. You're going to be in heaven, right? And if you're rich, be wise. Use your wealth wisely. God has given it to you as what? A steward. Does a steward own the things that he's in charge of? No. He is merely there as a manager for his master or his owner that he would make good distribution of it for where it's supposed to go and what it's supposed to do. Right? Likewise, all through the Bible, we are called stewards. We are to steward what God has given us responsibility for. God has given some of us much responsibility in the area of wealth. God has given some of us no responsibility in the area of wealth. Right? You can't steward what you don't have. Right? Now again, in this country, there's very few of us who have nothing. Right? But, comparatively speaking, we would measure ourselves that way. But again, comparatively speaking, we need to measure ourselves against the kingdom. Why was James saying this? Because he had watched those people lose everything they had. He was talking about people just like us, living in a culture just like us. They were in Jerusalem, the main city. They were prosperous. They had a life. They came to Jesus. This is the best news. It's the good news. It's the great news, the gospel. They had come to Christ and then boom, the bottom of the floors kicked out. They lost everything because of it. And yet James says, you know what? What you lost was temporary. What you gained is eternal. Keep it in perspective. And I think that's a message that's lost in our culture in America today. We take money instead of Jesus and then come back hoping we could get him again. Right? That doesn't work that way. We've got to walk with him all the way through. Through rich or poor, he has to be Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we think through this, There's all kinds of lessons of this in our culture. Um, It's easy to be secretly envious of people around us. It's easy to not be content. 
It's also easy on the other side to not be a good steward, not be responsible, not give good faith uh, uh, accounting for what you made us responsible for. Every person in this room is a steward of something, Lord. You've put them in charge of a certain arena, a certain responsibility, a certain geographic um, part of area that they are influencing. And we are to be good stewards with that. Lord, we ask your favor this morning for a conversation with you to clarify if we're doing well, encourage us and cheer us on. If we need to sharpen something up, Lord, bring us bring us a word of wisdom. Lord, if we're not doing that well, then rebuke us and get us back in line with where we're supposed to be. May we relearn the eternal lesson of being content in you. And we give this to you in your name. Amen.